have you been following this European Super League thing in no. the world of footy? So oh, no. this was a huge God, I walked issue. right into this. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Macon, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. If you like what you hear and want to help us keep going, you can support us on patreon.com slash Let's get into it. You know how... European football is like a bunch of different leagues. Yes. They were contemplating having a group of teams break away and start their own league. Basically like the NBA, basically like, you know, the MLB, the NFL, but obviously across Europe. 99.9999% like money driven reasons because they can make more money as clubs. Okay. Right. And interesting. This is something that interestingly enough, was driven by three American owners and then two other, I think, Europeans. But it's very interesting because it's like almost the Americanization of professional sports where there's no promotion relegation, which European sports really enjoy. So there's, there is sort of this reward for performing well if you're a small club because you go to the next level. And there's a punishment if you don't perform, which means you get relegated to a lower league. Okay. But I thought it was really interesting because it really called into question the relationship clubs have with fans because there was a ton of backlash from I was just about to ask you if this was received poorly. Extremely poorly. Mm. For me, this is probably an unpopular opinion, but grassroots slash lower league European football slash soccer means very little to me. Not because I don't care about it so much as that when I watch European soccer or football i just really care about watching it for the premium nature of the product but for me i have grassroots football that i follow whether it's in hong kong whether it's back in canada which is arguably even worse than lower league like european football so it actually matters very little to me but to the people in europe it probably mm. matters quite a lot it does it matters because it's like so much of their identity and soul is derived by like a local club right yeah yeah so i thought it was i thought it was interesting like i don't think my take is going to be recognized really because honestly i have very little like how do i put this i suddenly understand all these random tweets from this week based off of this news which yeah. I didn't bother. Oh, so to you like, kind of you kind of knew you were semi familiar, probably like no, I knew something was going on in footy and league related, but I just couldn't be fussed to figure out the origin. Yeah. So interesting because sometimes when I see th- when I see things enough, I'll just oh man, all right, this is the tenth time seeing it. I'm gonna sorry, I'm sorry, I just couldn't. I didn't yeah. care enough. Yeah. Well, that is interesting. I wonder where I'll but go. But some some teams are already withdrawn. They like within. 24, 48 hours, they've already been like, all right, bad idea. There's a funny tweet and I'll read it to you. Man, you really hyped this up. This better be funny. 
This European Super League is like a lad's night out before everyone asks their missus if it's all right. So basically their missus being the fans, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think it's just, yeah, it's quite interesting because we all know football to be a, like a business, like anything else, like fashion's a business. So I do think it's nice when the purity wins out Mm because often Mm -hmm. it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, football still is messed up. Like, a lot of people were saying, well, people reacted really quickly to this. Why haven't they reacted as quickly to racism in football, which is also a massive issue? There's I mean, nothing else to add. Started out light right there and then you brought it, you brought it in. Actually, I got an interesting feedback from a friend who I've been friends with for a while, but only just recently started listening to Making It Up. Mm-hmm. Very generous of him to begin. And he asked me why not all the episodes are on YouTube. Oh. That's a very simple answer because I think previously the the hosting service we were using would automatically create a video to upload to YouTube and that's not available on Anchor. That explains a lot because I was like, none of them are on YouTube. And then he said, that's not true. The first 20 episodes are. And then it stops. And he was like, what happened? Yeah, it's purely based off of that output function okay mystery cleared up you know what that's also really interesting is that i've I've mentioned this before but in terms of quote-unquote marketing tools like no one's really cracked it although the way that we market our podcasts is through these audiograms honestly i don't know i don't know how successful they are i don't know how successful they are at getting new listeners but i think they are interesting it's for a reminder it's like our a push, existing yeah, it's a push notification listeners i don't know i saw this interesting tweet recently that was about how in terms of complexity of thought it's like text to audio to video but then for stickiness it's the other way around video audio text so we're right in the middle yes of both of those so things doesn't do anything quite that well. <laughs> it's like kind of jack of all trades, middle of the road, not great. Average. Exactly average. You know what does really well is pull quotes. An average a piece amount of, of complexity. Nicely laid out graphic design. That usually does well. Does it? Is this an anecdote? Is this like objective? Well, no, because think about it. Stats. With audio, there's no visually compelling thing to draw you in. Like a, a soundbar moving up and down isn't that captivating no it's really and it's also too long you have to listen through 15 seconds okay but people love watching videos correct nowadays i think that there's much more of a connection there with a quote either well no i mean if you watch a video you're you're seeing something and if you're seeing a person that's probably even better i think people just like to hear and see a person in my opinion i mean in theory we could start recording ourselves i don't know how well that would work like when i mean sorry recording as in a video recording we are obviously audio recording this like a lot of times when you search somebody on youtube for an interview or whatever not necessarily for an interview if you search someone on youtube if they've done a lot of publicity and they've appeared on the joe rogan show like i'll if i put that on i'll just not look away like i'll I'll pop in i might be on my phone or whatever might be multi-devicing but yeah Multi-devising. Pointing new words no, all the time. No, that's not a new word. Multi-devising? I, that's, well, multi-device is like 
you know, well, I know what it means, but I've never heard anyone use multi-device thing. Vocab word of the day. All right. You want to start today? Yeah, let's start. All right. My topic this week is a bit of a somber one. Is it? Mm, you didn't read it, did you? I read half of it. And then you were too depressed to continue onwards. Is that right? Well, no, the reason I made a face isn't because I disagree that it's somber, but just that I no longer think that that is extraordinary for us because we've done a whole bunch of not super upbeat subjects. I'm sorry. Do you think, Do you think people come here for humor and upbeatness? Probably not. I don't know, man. I'm not. That's a good question. So my question, Jesus, they're doing a massive photo shoot outside right now. I know. I'm super distracted by the people outside yeah, our window. We are recording mark. from FMBG. It's like being in a radio booth and outside the radio booth is the shopping mall. There's at least a crew of seven people out there. The thing is, my line of sight is right into the flash. Well, no, it's not flashing to my face. But anyways, anyways, let's continue. Not paying attention to what's going on yeah. outside of the booth. It's ironic that we're talking about fashion and it's happening right outside. That's so true. Anyways, so the subject is read this before you decide to work in fashion by Eugene Rapkin. And this appeared in High Snobiety. Eugene Rapkin, if you're unfamiliar, is the founder of Style Zeitgeist. He's a pretty celebrated writer, author, critic. Uh, I really enjoy Eugene's takes because... I mean, he doesn't really pull any punches. It's like pretty straight up. I think it's often well articulated. I don't agree with everything. I remember something in the past. We talked about yeah. his writing on this podcast before. Yeah. It's just like, it's hard hitting. And it's just like the reality situation. I mean, it's well thought through. I think his arguments hang together, even if you don't necessarily agree with everything. Yeah, 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 totally. And this piece is really 75-25. And what I mean by that is 75% of it is painting fashion as like this terrible industry and then 25% is like the redeeming quality. So it's almost like something that balances itself out in the end. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know very many people who describe articles in terms of percentage. But okay. Yeah. 75, 25 I mean, the and format, then 50, The 50. format stood out to me because it was basically outlining every single category of fashion that was shitty. And there's a lot. There's a lot. And then concluding with some redemption. Yeah. Okay. So are you going to tell us every shitty thing? What's I'm the plan? going to touch upon them. Okay. All right. Uh, I really like one of these opening paragraphs. Fashion is like high school, but with $1.5 trillion at stake. There are the popular kids, the jocks, the cheerleaders, the nerds, the sheepish outsiders. The entire industry that employs designers, creative directors, models, celebrities, public relation firms, editors, influencers, show producers, photographers, stylists, makeup artists, and hairstylists, and the armies of assistants and interns that support them runs on insecurity. Do you agree? Yes, I do agree. All right. I was trying to decide what kind of person I was in high school. Yeah. So, I mean, having said that, yeah, 100%, fashion does run on insecurities. And I think that as long as humans have insecurities. Which is always. Always. Which, which is, is how not it, ever how going it's become. to change. It is uniquely an industry propelled by a human flaw. Yes. Insecurities. Which, you know, which we couldn't necessarily say about other industries. Do you ever look at fashion as a way to mask and or accentuate yourself? Yes. What else do I look at fashion for? Well, I, I live I, in a temperate climate. I'm not picking no, clothing. No, I mean, no, there's for, a difference. There's a difference between buying for functionality you just described a functionality trait though well that's but i was trying to say that i live in a temperate climate where i don't have to buy 
clothing for extreme weather conditions. Yes. So therefore, but then, even if you do, you would still buy based on fashion as an aesthetic, like buying a Canada goose. Yeah, is, but I mean, particularly, I feel like in this city, you don't really have to pick things for really difficult weather. Yeah. Function choices. What else do I wear clothes for if not for to say something about myself? The reason I ask this is that do you think I do the same? No. Really? You think I don't wear, I don't pick a wardrobe or a brand based off of the desire to communicate something? No, I don't think you that's even, actually you don't quite, even like telling people that, oh, these are wisdom. That's actually not the answer I was expecting. I was expecting you to say like, oh, Eugene, you think you don't care, but I know you care. <laughs> That's kind of what I was, well, think about it. Like <laughs> We've been doing this podcast too long. We just sort of script out how we think the podcast is going to go in our heads beforehand. As, as much as I think that I don't care what people think, I'm definitely making conscious decisions on what clothes I put on oh, and yeah. what brands, right? I think, but I, I don't, I think you've made decisions about your wardrobe that are very much based on practicality. But practicality that links back to a brand and an aesthetic. You know what I mean? Like, I think that if it was pure- Are you upset that I somehow don't think that you have a brand and aesthetic? No. No. What I'm trying to say is that what I find most fascinating about this whole thing is that in reality, I think that people in any which way, whether they're into fashion or not, I think they recognize that fashion says something about them. Yep. And I think that part in itself- is actually the most fascinating part because never mind fashion as the creative medium. I think fashion as we know it is an identity signaler. Oh yeah. And I think that is like kind of one layer below creativity, right? What and do you mean by below? One layer below? So I think it actually trumps it. So like, oh. like me wearing a pair of Biborda pants is like an appreciation of creativity. Is that what you're wearing today? I'm wearing, I'm wearing yes. Okay, so that's like an appreciation of creativity and craft. Yeah. But I think that below that, for some, there's other ways of signaling things that trump it. And what I mean by that is this, this started to, to really register with me most recently. Well, not recently. And let's say in the last four years where merchandise really picked up. And mm -hmm. merchandise is not fashion, but you would say like if I, if I wore a logo t-shirt, that's still part of fashion, right? Yep. So- when media companies became part of the merchandise fashion paradigm, that's when you recognize that actually it's not fashion in the sense that it's like some intricate pattern cut and so whatnot. It's actually just some sort of graphic design. Yep. Right. And that is signaling identity. Yeah. And I've used this example before. You wearing a New York Times hat is not fashion, but it is fashion. Yes. Me wearing a Fox News or a mega cap, that's not fashion, but it's fashion. That's kind of what I'm getting at. Yeah, so as I, long I understand. As, I understand. As long it, as humans, it, it, the word is just interpreted slightly different in yes. that like first iteration and the second repetition. Okay, yeah. so so long as humans require identity, there's. I mean, fashion will never go away. Yeah, ever. As an anecdote, my grandmother was picking an outfit for my wedding about six weeks ago, and we were going through her wardrobe with her and. She said about this dress, which I believe is maybe about 40 years old, the dress. Okay. My, my grandma is 90. 
oh, I bought this fabric in Japan and it costs like XX amount of money. I forget what she said. Let's say 100 Hong Kong dollars. And then I took it to a tailor to get made. And it was so beautiful. And she repeated that like several times. Mm -hmm. and that just really stuck in my head because like my grandma's a super practical person. But mm -hmm. th that goes along your lines of like fashion is really for mm -hmm. every single person. How far they, however far they are removed from the industry. All right. So we've said some pretty positive things about fashion. Yeah. Well, one thing that I think actually encapsulates fashion quite well is this quote, fashion is full of shameless opportunists, posers, and social climbers, people who indiscriminately shove their business cards into everyone's hands, their eyes shining with greed for power and access, constantly working the room looking over your shoulder to see if there's someone more important they should be talking to instead. That's a little extreme, is it not? Mm, yeah, it could be extreme. But I also think that what it does represent is the desire to always seek the new, right? And the cyclical nature of like recycling and or taking relationships, extracting, and then leaping to the next one or f uh, jump frogging to the next one. I don't really interpret it as the constant search for the new so much as it is the constant search for an opportunity to make money. Yeah. So I don't think of it in this way as like, yeah, indirectly or identifying yeah. The, the most creative new use of a fabric, for example, that's not so much the interest as it is like, is there a money making proposition here that hasn't been taken advantage of yet? Yeah. 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 Uh, and then after this, after kind of laying the land, he goes into some of the different individual points. I, I think some of these are quite self-explanatory, but if I see something interesting, I'll, I'll expand upon it. So the nasty bits, opportunists, abuse of people, substance, the environment, and this abuse could be racism, job exploitation, uh, sexual abuse. And, you know, fashion is really about creating illusions, right? It's about selling you a dream, something aspirational for the most part. I think it's changed a little bit in this modern brand phenomenon where it's more about community. But for the most part, I think fashion has traditionally preyed on people's insecurities. Uh, and as much as it says it's innovative, it's actually quite slow to adapt. I think this is a byproduct of just the reality of the industry itself. It's not about changing a few lines of code like, there's minimum orders, there's orders for bolts of fabric that need to meet a certain requirement. So I think that in itself creates limitations on moving more quickly. There's also a lot of gatekeeping, as we know, like, I, I mean, in the pre blogger era, like it was really just magazines, newspapers that were really the ones uh, controlling the narrative because they had the access. And that's changed a little bit. Um, there's obviously a lack of transparency in media. And what I mean by that is Access is granted by the brands, and if you do not portray brands or individuals in positive light, they just revoke it. And then what do you have to write about? You have nothing to write about, right? And you, it's also not responsible journalism to speculate and or like not have the full picture. So you're kind of seeing the erosion of journalism and fashion. Fashion criticism. That's yeah, what fashion, says. yeah, fashion criticism. And obviously there's... To that point about gatekeeping, it's a lot of like elitism that is there because it is a requirement to maintain the power paradigm. Like who, who basically holds the keys, right? 
And I, I think that in general, these are all things that you recognize for the most part. It's fashion is this, in some ways, kind of this weird industry where there's so much money and it looks to be lucrative, but a lot of it is quite rickety, right? It's, it's predicated on a lot of free help, a lot of cheap labor, a sense of unrealistic timelines, a lot of things that are just like unethical. So many things like are kind of piling up in that regard. And it kind of reminds me of the food industry a little bit, like the F&B industry, where you have these three Michelin star restaurants in a nice hotel, but the people that are sort of there might be making like a little bit over minimum wage. I'm I'm actually just like saying that just in general, like, but in, in that regard, it's like the people that are consuming it versus the people that are the foundation of it actually have quite a bit of disparity in terms of socioeconomic standing, et cetera, mm. which I think is actually quite an interesting contradiction. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, as he goes over it, I want to, I also want to talk about this part about PR. That's probably the part that most intersects with his media background. Most notably, it kind of goes back to what I said about how PR tries really hard to influence the narrative. Yeah. Right. Over the years, the PR industry has gotten more insidious, often asking journalists to show them an article before its publication, to which my answer is a poignant no, though I will go back to them for fact checking or demanding that stylists only shoot full looks, turning editorials into de facto ads. Increasingly, they also ask for email interviews. That's a double no in my book, since there is no way of knowing who actually writes the answers. And more often than not, you get canned responses designed to say nothing in so many words. This has led them to also reject opportunities to interview Eddie Sleman because of the lack of access to him. Basically, it's like, hey, I don't want to do your email interview, which I think is fair, right? Like, maybe on that scale, your expectation is that this is probably someone in the back end writing it for him. Yeah. Then you, obviously, someone emails me and I'm like, I don't have time. And although I, I generally don't like to do email interviews, but I, I probably... If someone requests an email interview, like probably you or I would probably be perfect. You and I would, might be a perfect candidate because we generally are okay writing. I can understand why Robkin is opposed because at what I assume are his level of publications and the types of interviews and profiles he's trying to write, then I do think an email interview would be insufficient and probably in the case of large fashion houses reviewed by publicists and legal and other parties but i personally for macon don't mind doing email interviews because not because well one our subjects are not eddie salon yeah they don't have publicists usually they are writing the answers and some people don't feel comfortable talking yeah like not that they're they don't feel comfortable being recorded but they don't feel like the things that I verbally say are going to be as accurate to what I actually intend to say. And that's just an editorial point. Yeah. I'm not surprised by his disdain for PR. I mean, ultimately, a lot of fashion media has died and just turned into like a product catalog. I understand. I also understand why PR does the job that it does, though. Yeah, I mean, you're just trying to bolster the presentation of the brand you're working for to be happy with a critical piece of writing as a fashion designer or as a creative person 
you have to really believe in the overall health of the ecosystem as opposed to just the health of your own brand. Mm. And that's what I think about the PR editorial relationship. And so they have decided we just want to watch out for our own good reputation. We don't really care that the lack of fashion criticism means that the overall fashion world has become increasingly shallow. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about this before too in the past where I always wonder why people think it's good business to hide the truth, right? Or And or like why they build, I mean, I guess I understand why people don't want to necessarily build the most ethical business because it's a lot of hard work that doesn't necessarily contribute. But when it comes to, for me anyways, uh, philosophically, I think that if someone comes and comes at you and you're able to defend yourself, I think that makes for a much stronger brand. And your inability to defend yourself actually shows weakness as a brand. Philosophically, I don't think they think of it as hiding the truth. It's things that would get, from their position, misinterpreted by the public or by this fashion critic, or that things are in progress and not ready for scrutiny. Mm. It's this feeling, which I understand as like a private person, but as a company, especially if you're a very large company, I do think it's probably better to show responsibility to your consumer. Having said that, does that all encapsulate all the negativity? You think, is there anything else you want to add to that? The negative, I mean, you skipped over the, I mean, I don't know. There's not that much to say besides recognizing that there is like abuse of power and whether that's classist or sexist or racist. There's a lot of like abuse of relationships in fashion. Yeah. It's not that I really wanted to harp on it, but. You could only see the disgust. I don't, I don't know. Face. Part of me is like, oh, is it really worse in fashion than in any other industry? Seems like there's exploitation across the board in all industries. Maybe I've, it is sometimes a little bit easier in fashion for people in positions of power to take advantage of it and get away with it because of the gatekeeping and this sense that like in order to make it far, you have to have access to certain types of people mm-hmm. and be in the good books like yeah it's definitely an industry built on relationships which is yeah not great for exposing abuse yeah but despite all this this is where there's the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow a small pot of gold yeah so like i said despite all the shortcomings rapkin's actually still very much pro fashion in the sense that he wouldn't trade this for anything so Rapkin's background story is that he immigrated to the United States and fashion has provided him with a wealth of opportunities. And the emotional interactions that he's received and experienced within fashion is probably the thing that sort of holds it all together. Like here you have all these different things that are ready to kind of blow fashion apart, but it's the glue that keeps it together. And he he cites two specific moments that I, I can imagine are quite strong because you know, this is his job. So the, the fact that he's pulled of all his memories, these two probably mean quite a bit. And they include Rick Owens's monumental scaffolding in the courtyard of Palais de Tokyo or Jun Takahashi and Takahiro Miyashita's order and disorder doubleheader at PTU Omo in Florence. So I think these two moments themselves, I think that it's like, it's kind of like 
seeing theater when you see like a great one runway show, right? I it's agree. Like a theater. performance. Yeah. It's, I mean, I don't go to a lot of these. I, I went to the Visdom one a few years ago, maybe 2016, 17. And it was kind of the same thing. Like, I don't remember any of the clothes, but I do remember the guys that were flown out from, I think there was the UK and were dancing and it was mm. very like 60s, 70s mm. vibes. I mean, I understand where Robkin's coming from because, you know, we've been kind of using fashion this whole time, singular, but all of this negative stuff is about the industry, about the system of companies and brands and institutionalized things like awards and fashion shows. But that's not. There's still fashion separate from all of that, mm -hmm. because fashion is a type of creative work and it's like you can make a garment the same way that someone can paint a painting yeah and that's something you can appreciate yeah and that's what i think eugene's getting at eugene rapkin in terms of still loving fashion it's like there's a lot of terrible things in the daily bits of trying to make money mm -hmm. from fashion or adjacent to fashion, but the actual creativity and craft of it is still worth appreciating. Yeah. I really like this, this second last paragraph. And I actually felt like he should have ended on this one or some sort of variation of this one. Basically this paragraph speaks about this level of human intimacy. I think that's captured through the artistry of fashion. That's both physical and emotional. What I love about these people is that they are misfits like me. They are the former artistic kids who were bullied in high school, the ones who refused to grow up. They are the cultural minorities who view aesthetic expression as a form of escape. The goths, the punks, the emos, the all-around creative class. They are the queers who have been shoved by the society into work that was not deemed serious until it became serious and the suits moved in, as they always do when they smell money. They are the aspirational class, the immigrants, the expats, the minorities, the restless souls with the kind of passion that often comes from desperation and the desire to make something out of nothing. It is a really strong paragraph and I agree it is stronger than the concluding one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, it, it's so true because what you fundamentally need to sort of disconnect and I understand, and that's kind of where my perspective on it being a 75% shitty, like in terms of like talking about the shittiness of fashion versus the 25% redeeming, which makes it 50-50 basically, is that you're divorcing the part about industry and business, which in more ways than one, like uh, how many industries feel like they become better because of its commercialization, right? I think that's the, the fundamental issue here is like commercialization changes the, the outcomes you're seeking, right? So that's one way of looking. I don't think there's any solution for that. Yeah. Right? I'm not. I'm just sighing over here. Yeah. I'm. This kind of harps back to our anti-capitalism sort of like era of like three or four episodes straight where we just like. Excellent. Back yeah. to that phase. Yeah. But, you know, it is true because for me growing up, I've made most of my career off of fashion in some capacity. Yet I very much subscribe to Eugene Rapkin's POV where it's like, it's honestly smoke and mirrors. It's like mostly dog shit. Like, I don't really care about it but I do respect its power. I think I, the fact I respect it so much is something that came after the fact because post-Hypebeast, 
I definitely went through this probably like 18 month phase where I thought fashion was the worst thing and anyone who touched fashion was like the worst. I'm like, <laughs> but it was one of this like, like it was incorrect, right? It was like, oh, like I'm out of it. Oh, I'm so much better man. than you. But I think the real- I got out. What are you waiting for? Exactly. It was kind of along those lines. But then when you think about it, like that was probably more of an identity crisis than anything, like for me personally. And then when you start to like recreate your definition of fashion- it's for you to create, mm. right? It's like, how do you want to be a participant in it? And, you know, Rapkin has his point of view as the fashion critic, right? And I, I think that for him, there's there's a way for you to create your own job description in a way within the industry. And if you don't like it, that's also on you. I mean, there's certain systemic issues that will take a long time or never be solved. But your own personal involvement in anything, whether it's fashion, whether it's your career, at some point, you have the ability to write your own job description, but you also have to pay your dues, unfortunately. You also have to put food on the table, right? Yeah. Like Rapkin still has to write about the fashion houses in order to make a living. So he can't really avoid that. Yeah. Um, but I think alongside that, he gets to, he has reached a point where, like you said, choose the parts of it that he really enjoys and embrace that yeah i mean and then make do with the parts that he can't avoid yeah like a lot of my best friends were unified through but a lot of my really good friends came through fashion right and even though we would never meet up to talk about fashion i think that it was the thing that unified us at a point in time yeah right like i think it's just like a, a really interesting thing because Fashion really is a vehicle for creativity that is the easiest one for you to experience because, I mean, it's kind of like art, but it's a little bit different from art. What I mean is that I could walk on the street and I could see a piece of street art, but then me passing you on the street and what you're wearing already conveys so much more of a story. I mean, fashion's really accessible because we all wear clothes. Exactly. And there, you have a choice every time you buy it. An article of clothing yeah to make a new type of decision about what you want to say about yourself yeah so it is uniquely accessible but i also think about so there's wearing fashion and then there's the people who make and design clothes apparel and that's not just a vehicle for creativity but is creative expression yeah and yes a lot of it might be smoke and mirrors and in service of commercialization, but there is still definitely people out there, whether, you know, well-recognized or not, who are very interested in apparel as their way of expressing creativity. And yeah. just like painters and videographers, photographers, et cetera. Yeah. What is the unique thing? The, the really unique thing is the part where we all wear clothes. Yeah. It's pretty wild. It's like the common denominator. I, I do think that when it comes to certain things that we feel unhappy with, a way to mitigate the feeling of negativity is perspective and trying to figure out like, well, ultimately, despite all this stuff going on, what are the things I do enjoy? I think that it's quite easy to get sucked in to this overbearing feeling of negativity. Do you think it's better to be ignorant of the negatives of all the downsides or to really seek out knowing 
everything that's bad about your chosen field. Awareness of everything leaves you empty because you spend so much time worrying about all these things Mm. until you (laughs) cross over and realize, "Ah, I can't really control most of this, right? And your inability to control something is in some ways a liberating factor. Oddly enough, which unfortunately is how I see like most of the world right now. Yeah, but you have to work your way to get there. Of course, yeah. To that mindset. I was I'm, I wonder like like over the course of my quote unquote like career in fashion, like I was never really that big into the final product. I was always someone who saw it as the vehicle for a story or like obviously not everything's that deep. But I think that was a part of it that I enjoyed the most when I found a piece of clothing that actually seemed to tell something new or a different story or something like that. That's funny because I, I'm pretty into the final product, which you yeah. wouldn't really tell by looking at me because I don't wear anything remarkable, honestly, or go out of my way to acquire anything remarkable. But even going into college, I was most interested in that runway effect Mm -hmm. of seeing apparel you know on a human body in motion i can't really explain it i don't know i just like i guess i've always had an appreciation for it in a kind of sculptural way yeah yeah i mean that's kind of the artistry of it yeah yeah that's all for me should we move on let's do it Okay, so by the way, I I love this publication because it's always like conceptual, like American Silver Rex. Yeah, it's I'm like conceptual, it. like photography, ah, boutique articles. I love this art project. So yeah. the concept of the zine is that the artist accidentally formatted his phone and then lost three years worth of photos and I assume other material as well on the phone in the process of formatting it. I was going to read his note in the zine. It comes at the end. I've deleted the last three years of my life. Images of people, moments, situations, all gone in these confused and dramatic times in which it's clear that there's no logic that commands chaos and that chaos reigns supreme. The rule is that we must not only prepare for the worst, but for the worst of the worst as well. Treasuring this motto and trying to live by it, I realize that it takes enormous discipline to accept all this chaos and lack of logic. Yeah, and it continues, and that was part of it. And the zine itself is 48 pages, and it's a collection of images that are all sort of collaged together in a sequence where the reviewer says this as well, but I think it will be quite obvious if you look through it. It's very tempting to the reader to try and make sense of it to try and make narrative sense of it. And there are like recurring figures and there's this sense that there's a story, but it's not possible because it's like this mix of images that you assume are from the artist's life along with images you assume are like from the internet or stock photography and then found photos as well. But the temptation is like that blurb said, like to try to make logic out of things that are chaotic on the surface. I just wanted to start, I think there's a really interesting conceptual idea here is like 
what happens the, yeah sorry because the door i think there's a really interesting conceptual idea here which is what happens in your mind when you lose digital archives or what happens to you emotionally i've had it happen before i think it was a mix between work and personal but i would say that most recently if the idea isn't committed to memory outside of the need to remember it through a photo then it's probably not that important and controversial opinion and i think that the reason why is that amidst all of the content we personally can create through our smartphones it devalues content in general i so in theory if no man it's so easy to like you know i could take i could take a, a photo of something that could mean nothing during the moment so much as like oh you know what it was cool for a second to pull me away but it's you know there's there's no there's no cost um of creating content or committing like you know taking a photo which is why i think that it inherently reduces the overall value of it so that's why my threshold is like do i remember it without a photo and that soon defines how important it is i disagree not because I can say in some kind of like really objective way that what I'm about to say is true for everyone. But I personally am a record keeper. Mm -hmm. I'm a bit of a digital hoarder. So just for reference. I digital hoard too. I spent a couple of years of my life scanning all the receipts I had. Not for tax reasons. This was when I was too young to realize the importance of taxes in relation to like receipts and bookkeeping. Okay. Just purely because I liked the concept of having every single receipt of my purchases. Okay. So this is just an example of like the type of person I am. And so therefore, I think of these like digital archives or artifacts as a process of your life. That if you lost, yes, maybe I don't actually concretely remember every photo I have or every scan I've made, but there is a, but there's a possibility that I can't let go of that it could become important. Yeah. And I used to have that feeling too, actually. I would say I was closer to you than what I am now, but then it feels like a sense of preparation in terms of you needing it for something. But I've yet to, I've yet to experience the the downfalls of needing it. You know what I mean? Like no, I know what you mean. It's not ever become such a big deal that you lost something. Yeah, like it like, was devastating. I, this sounds really bad, but I'm trying to think of what are moments. Well, no, that's, yeah, I have I have no real sort of like maybe it's a sense of like nihilism. Is that the right word? Yeah, where I just don't really care that much about individual things i look at things more as a, a sum of all parts for it to be meaningful like for me our friendship is not defined by that one time we did that it's about every single interaction creating the picture it's not about one color it's about the whole painting and all the colors which I is understand. why like, i understand yeah. but i as i've come to experience and consume a lot of things it always defaults back to if I care enough about something, then it will lead to something else. So that's why I use that original example of like, if I don't have a memory, if I don't have a photo of it, but I still remember it, that arguably filters through 
99.9% of everything that I've experienced. And that becomes important to me. Not the fact I have a photo or don't have a photo. I'm thinking about my collections of things. And I'm not a collector. I That's suppose another issue. I can't say that I would be devastated in losing these collections of writing and photos and other miscellaneous sequential things I've aggregated. But they are important to me. And I just think that as a collection, it's important. But I'm not quite able to say important in what way to me. Like, it could just be the process of creating that collection. Like, I write semi-regularly for my own private purposes Mm -hmm. to just write. And it's not like any single bit of writing is, like, so beautiful and miraculous that if I lost it, I would be, you know, really broken up. But the fact of it all existing together is valuable. The, the author of this piece says something I think is really interesting. He writes, The extension of the phone as a technological organ of significance cannot be overlooked. The phone has become an extension of memory, of sight, and it functions as an instrument for the cognitive associations in images that we draw from the world that fits in our pockets. How often do we make photographs with the phone that are meant as memory markers or that function as a simple form of collateral document for our experiences, perhaps daily? And he goes on with this thought to say that essentially our digital devices are a part of our brain, like an external brain, external memory storage. And that's how a lot of humans have trained themselves to use their devices. Mm -hmm. So this is not you because you clearly really rely on what your actual brain remembers. Yeah. Well, no, I think there's different things to unpack here. One is just the actual functional aspect. Like I'm not going to go and look at uh, a body of text and try to remember it. Right. I'll just take a photo of it. But when I'm thinking about like memories in a different capacity, like things that have emotional resonance, I don't feel like I need a photo to be reminded for it to be validated, I think is maybe the two differences. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. So like the phone to you is like a temporary memory storage, short-term memory storage, so that you can free up your brain and not have to use your brain in that way, Yes, which is good practical sense, I think. But I do think that there are definitely people who will store even more significant parts of their memory within their digital devices in photos. Yeah. And I don't really, I don't think of it as like a weakness necessarily. Like it's there for Uh, you. And I don't even think it's necessarily tied to digital devices because we've had photography for a while and also like visual imagery. So. Yeah. I remember like pre pandemic, I had a friend who got married and they asked if I could shoot some like very candid photos. And, you know, over the course of that evening, I shot, you know, let's say 200 photos that I thought were really good. Can't really pick out 200 photos from that. I can pick out specific moments that I experienced and witnessed that I also probably captured on camera, but there's no one singular moment that sticks out. So that's, to me, what's more impactful is the fact that I actually recall a moment when they were on the dance floor and they're pouring Hennessy on the on the dance floor or something, right? Even though I didn't get a photo of that, that's more important and more impactful than them having a good time and me shooting a photo of that, 
what's deemed important are the ones that are the least easy. That makes sense. I almost also agree sort of like in, in everyday life and like work and whatnot, the things that are most valuable are the ones that have the most friction. And the fact there's no photo means there's a lot more friction to remember it. Yeah. And also it's interesting because photo, the lack of photos can lead to you misremembering something. Yes. Because there's no photographic evidence. You're relying on your faulty brain. But also having photos can equally lead you to misremember something, to just yeah. remember it the way that it has been photographed. So it's there's possibility either way. Like having photos can help you reconstruct more exactly the feelings that you had in that moment. Yeah. And it can also warp your memory of yeah. what it was like to be there at that time. Another really interesting aspect of this article was about from not because we've been talking about you as the photographer, as the person with the photographs and the like archive. And the article also goes on to like, what is it like to be like a voyeur? You pick up someone else's devices. You wind up with another person's like hard drive and contextless. You're like looking through their photos. I think that's a really interesting kind of art experiment of what happens when you're trying to like reconstruct someone's narrative. Yeah. Which I've never actually had the opportunity to do. I would feel uncomfortable. I would too. I would feel like I was intruding on their privacy. Because especially because it comes from a mobile device. I think that if I looked at your photos from a digital camera, I'd almost feel different. But the fact of the matter is there's a certain level of privacy that comes with a passcoded phone. Yeah, I know. I, I felt the same way. Like he poses that question. And I'm yeah. like... Well, I couldn't do that. I would not let someone do that. I would not want to do that, it, like, given the opportunity, even for a stranger who I didn't know. Yeah. And the author uses a phrase I like where he calls it a intimate treasure trove. I think that's so true. Like, there's a lot you could find in there that's both actually, potentially, monetarily to treasure, like people's bank account information and ID information, mm -hmm. and then also just this, like, emotional treasure of people's most private moments yeah. that they keep on their phones. The artist himself, he, through the photographs, suggests that the loss of the photographic evidence of his last three years of his life was like being temporarily blinded. So it's like he suddenly lost all the memories and then they slowly come back to him because it's like, he had been relying on his three years of taking photos. And once they're taken away, it's like bits and pieces are reconstructed through what you have left, whether that's like other people's photos or texts and things like that. Yeah. I thought that was quite interesting as well is that you and I, even we've been talking hypothetically about like what parts of our memories are dependent on our phones and our computers. Well, we can't know actually unless you took them away from us. Mm -hmm. And then we would immediately find out like, oh, this is actually how much I was reliant on my archives. Yeah. Which I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, wish on someone. But yeah, we can't know unless you took it away. Yeah. Does this piece make you rethink how you capture photos on, and videos? It actually forced me to arrive at a point of view, that quote-unquote controversial one, mm -hmm. in terms of, realizing that so many things I create just don't really don't they're very ephemeral even though 
they aren't meant to be ephemeral. You know what I mean? Like there's like 30,000 photos in my Lightroom catalog and like, I'm not going to look at like, Ooh. I couldn't pick one out of any of those. You tell me how many photos you have on your app right now. I'll tell you how many I have on mine. Well, you mean on, on my iOS? Like yeah. Photos app? Okay. In my recents, I have 8,258. I have 45,938. Oh my goodness. 45,000. But like, that's the thing is like, maybe because I have. I think I'm quite selective already. Almost six times more photos than you. They mean less. six times less. I mean, possibly. I, it's hard to equate it in such like strict numbers. My impression after reading this article was. I really should back up my photos. That genuinely was one of my first thoughts was like, I should back up the ones that I care about. And then. I should really do something about, I was actually kind of creatively motivated by looking at the zine because like I said, I am a collector of things um, and have random collections of images for different purposes, different unspecified purposes that might become projects. And I thought, oh, if I, if I only, you know, went through my photos as well and pulled out 50 of them or so to create a zine, that'd be quite um personally rewarding i did think of actually a few different zine concepts just over the course of this session are you going to make any of them probably not <laughs> i feel they're more like group things i was thinking group like zines i was thinking like what happens if you got 10 people and every person was given a random photo they had to turn into a narrative like had to write like a caption or a narrative around it i actually love that that is a good, sorry to completely not respond to that. That is an interesting zine idea. I also love this meme format, which I don't know if you've seen on the internet, where there's like a prompt, but you're only allowed to use photos that already exist on your phone to respond to the prompt. Yes, that's kind of cool. I think that's quite cool as well. Yeah. So like I whenever you receive it, like you have to work with what you got. You can't actually go out and make something new. I was thinking about that too, where you would try to utilize found imagery to tell a story like just stock imagery or whatnot obviously it, licensing would be an issue but that'd be kind of interesting it would be kind of you would have to only do this with people you trusted but it would be kind of interesting if there was like four of us and we all put into a drive let's say the 30 most recent photos that we took on our phones yeah. minus ones that are you know private and confidential and then we had to respond, you know, create a narrative from that, but mixed together yeah. out of our four collections. I don't know. There's a lot of possibilities. Maybe there's a whole genre. iPhone photo roll zines. Maybe. It's quite good. Good creative jam session. All right. Good place to wrap things up. Yeah, let's wrap it up. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com. M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via Patreon.com slash Macon. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Sharice at Macon.com or Eugene at Eugene at Macon.com. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>